Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. It was a national vote, it was a national referendum, and Parliament has to respect that. We're leaving on the 31st of October, no ifs or buts. The time when people trust politicians, that's over. Can you give us a question? Can I'm you, not going to give you a can question. You can you stay categorical? You are fake news. Sir. There is an awakening going on. Activism works. I will do whatever it takes to stop Brexit. Well, good afternoon, uh, everyone. I'm Ian Dale. Uh, I'm a graduate of UEA. Uh, I graduated 35 years ago uh, this year from this very school when it was EUR, so it's really great to be back. Um, We're going to talk to two former MPs for Norfolk. Uh, Norman Lamb was Liberal Democrat MP for North Norfolk from 2001 to uh, up until the last general election. Um, I actually fought him for the seat in 2005, so we might have a little chat about that uh, halfway through. And Keith Simpson was... Unsuccessfully. Yeah, the the electorate fought back. (laughs) Um, And Keith Simpson uh, was Conservative MP for, well, first of all, Mid-Norfolk, wasn't it? And then it became Broadland uh, between 1997 and also the last election. So I want to talk generally about what's changed in the world of politics and the relationship between politicians and the media over this period? Because, of course, back in 1997, the internet, well, it did exist, but um, not to any great extent. Um, email had been <coughs> had been invented, but social media did not exist. We live in a completely different media world now um, than, than, than we did then. Well, let's start off with the job of an MP and how that has changed over the past 20 or 30 years. Um, Keith, when you were first elected in 1997, um, what did you think the job of an MP entailed? What did you find out that it entailed and how did it change over the ensuing 20 years? Um, well, Ian, I was... Um I was a nerd in the sense that uh, I had been a equivalent of Dominic Cummings in the late 1980s. I'd been a, a special advisor at the Ministry of Defence from 1988 to, to uh, 1991. And therefore, I had sat alongside ministers and MPs, and I had a bit of a feel for what it involved on the constituency side. I also fought a hopeless seat. I fought... Plymouth Devonport in 1992 and then began the humiliating experience uh, which Norman I don't think had because he was always going to go for North Norfolk of being interviewed or not being interviewed for a range of seats until finally I got selected for the old mid-Norfolk seat in the late summer of 96 and what I knew was that being an MP involved having to balance being down in London from Monday to Thursday, and then being back in the constituency Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But as Ian said, it was it was such a different world than the one we live in now. I mean, the the ninety seven general election. I thought we were going to do badly. I didn't think it was going to be a complete wipeout. I mean, there were only thirty new Conservative MPs in ninety seven. I hung on, and so uh, you were thrilled to be elected. But it was an enormous challenge, and you have no reason to particularly know about this unless you've studied it. But, I mean, Blair and Brown <clears throat> completely demolished the Conservative Party. I mean, we, we were on on our ro- on the ropes. Uh, people didn't want to know us. Uh, and we then had 13 years to get back into, um, into government. 
And what you did as a new MP was to spend a lot of your time getting to know your constituency. And that is to hold surgeries, to give interviews to local television, radio, um, and to visit schools, hospitals, etc. Now, my constituency didn't have a big hospital in it, or in, that, in one sense, a big employer either. A lot of my constituents uh, worked for the National Health Service or for local government, and it was the empire of the white van man. I mean, you know, you go crisscross the, the central part of Norfolk on the B roads, and you'll see lots of small industrial places where people are mending cars or doing a little bit of engineering. And the final thing I would say is that I don't think I had expected. I was married. My, my son then was uh, five years old. The impact it has on your family. You know, um, in 2015, within a year, something like 20 Conservative MPs had either got divorced or they had split up with their partners. It's an enormous strain on your husband, wife, or partner. My son is heavily traumatised. That's why he's now a journalist for the Daily Express, God save us. Um, and that added to his, sort of his peace of mind? <laughs> he's, 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 he's paid for doing his hobbies. And he's the online film reviewer for the Daily Express. But you know, his earliest memories are attending Conservative Party uh, fundraising parties and handing out the small eats and and taking around bottle, bottle, bottles of wine. But it, it's, it's, a, it's a strange job, there's no doubt about it, getting the balance between all these things. And then the final thing I would say is um, communications. So how did you communicate with your electorate? Well, they tended to uh, email you or write to you. Um, all MPs had pages in 1997, a small thing looks like a mobile phone, and you would get messages on it from the whips telling you there was going to be a vote at five o'clock. And if you wanted to send a message, you had to phone up the company that ran the pages, and you would then leave a short, sharp message with a colleague, please phone me, all the best, Keith. The world that MPs, the new lot of MPs have just been elected, I don't have to tell all of you this, because I'm in many ways an analogue man, my son keeps telling me. Um, everybody has a mobile phone. Everybody tends to be on social media, something that I didn't experience in 1997. Uh, it's good and bad. Uh, it's good in the sense that you get a lot of impact and, and uh, communication with your constituents. It's bad because... There's a lot of seriously weird people out there. And I don't mean that they are skinheads with tattoos. Um, uh, one of my lady colleagues, Conservative MP, who's actually she retired in December, um, she told me about a year ago that she'd had to get the police involved because she was getting the most disgusting uh, text messages and stuff on social media saying that she was going to be raped and that they knew where her daughters were, etc., etc. And she said, and do you know who was doing this? The deputy head in one of the schools in my constituency. Uh, you know, and we're not different from people in other walks of life. It's just that if you go onto social media, you've got to be prepared to take the nice things, but a hell of a lot of abuse which we didn't get in the same way 23 years ago. And Norman, you, you took a 
slightly different route into politics, and you fought your seat twice before you won it. Um, how how did you communicate with your electorate in those days compared to how you did in the last couple of general elections? Well, it's fascinating listening to Keith because our roots into the job we then did, uh, the, the roots that we took into the job that we then did are so completely different. And, uh, and my experience, um, I suspect, of the whole thing is, is very different. So there, there aren't, the Lib Dems have no safe seats. Uh, so there's no point going off to fight a hopeless seat in the hope of being selected for a plum seat because it's not going to happen. <coughs> so the only way you get into Parliament is to uh, create your own chance. Uh, so you have to create a sort of microclimate within uh, one part of the country um, and change people's normal voting habits. Uh, and that tends not to happen overnight. It takes uh, often years to, to do. And one of the key things you have to do is to convince people that uh, you have a chance of winning. They might like you, but if they think you've got no chance of winning, they're not going to vote for you. The infamous bar chart. Yeah. No, well, that's, that's very much part of it. Um, but for me, in those years of trying to build up support, I started off against a conservative majority of 15,500, and people said, it's, it's not possible to win here. So I was sort of met with a degree of negativi ne negativity right at the start. Um, but the Eastern Daily Press was my crucial means of communicating with people. So we produced all of the leaflets endlessly, uh, the focus leaflets through letterboxes, but you just have to get build a profile uh, so that people know who you are. And by the time I got elected, uh, my sort of name recognition was incredibly high. And that was down to, to a large degree, use of the local media. Mm. Um, so it's endless press releases uh, to the Eastern Daily Press, to the North Norfolk News, which, of course, in those days were selling vastly more copies than they are now. Getting onto Radio Norfolk, uh, getting critically, and it's very difficult when you're not yet an MP, but getting onto uh, the BBC uh, regional uh, programme, Look East, uh, and onto Anglia, um, and you have to be obsessive about it in order to uh, break through. And uh, but I, I think ultimately you create your own sort of personal coalition of support, which gets you over the line. So, you know, a big chunk of the vote uh, when I won in two thousand and one was people who would normally have gone out and voted Labour, uh, who voted for me because we had convinced them ultimately that we were the route to beating the Conservatives. Um, and it took a long time to get to that point. Um, uh, but then another chunk of the support was um, Conservatives, who, and you found this when you knocked on doors. Um, uh, but one by one, and literally almost street by street, you convince people to give you a chance. Uh, and to change their voting habit. Um, and so you'd get people on the doorstep who would say regularly, uh, all the way through my time, uh, well, I'm a Conservative, but I vote for you. I, I remember canvassing in Overstrand, which, story. which is a little village on the coast, very close to uh, Cromer. And 
quite a well-to-do village, the sort of people you would expect to be normal conservative voters. And I remember spending the whole of a Saturday afternoon knocking on door after door after door and getting exactly the same response each time. Well, we think you're great and we are really conservatives, but we really like Norman. He's a really good MP. And I remember going home that evening and saying to my partner, that's it. If we can't get over Strand, there is no way this is going to work. And this was quite a few months out from the general election. And yet I had to go through the next few months sort of pretending to everyone that I was going to win when I knew that I absolutely wasn't. And that, that was a... Cri you, what you said about coalitions of support there is really interesting because even though there was a coalition government... We now live in an age where we have silo politics, where people on different sides, where you have a sort of... Ve we've had a very left-wing Labour Party and people say now a very right-wing Conservative Party, and it's almost as though never the twain shall meet. And th those days of building coalitions seem, seem to be over. Yeah, and I think it may be more difficult. Uh, there's one, one thing I worry about. Um, n now, um, fighting an election the way I did it when I was successful to start with... I think might be more difficult, in part because uh, the, the way the funding, uh, uh, the, the finance rules of elections work, it allows uh, a national party to send out um, mail shots from the Prime Minister, um, in the case of the Conservatives at the moment, um, to every voter, every household in North Norfolk. Um, and although this is uh, it's targeted at people in the seats that the Conservatives want to win, each party does this, incidentally. It's not a slur on the Conservatives. But um, the power of the central machine to overwhelm a sort of local initiative like I built up, I, th I fear might be too great. But interestingly, in, in this election, I don't know how many of you experienced this, but... Um, I live during the week in Tunbridge Wells, which is, everyone thinks of as a very conservative seat, which it is. The Liberal Democrats have always thought that they had a chance there. Um, and I had, uh, I think, 18 different pieces of literature from the Liberal Democrat candidate or from Joe Swinson, virtually all of them sent uh, centrally. They yeah. weren't delivered by local people. Exactly. This is the phenomenon that I'm talking about. Yeah. But it... Uh, uh, I mean, it happened to be singularly unsuccessful uh, in 2019. Uh, but what they were doing was they were targeting seats with a high Remain vote. Uh, and it was an attempt to persuade a sort of metropolitan elite vote to come out and vote Lib Dem. And it failed. Uh, I, I felt it from the start it was a flawed strategy. I didn't support it. Um, but that's what they were attempting to do. But the other, th just very quickly, the other thing that I wanted to say was that when I was first elected, I was just met by this uh, absolute torrent of letters. It wasn't emails in those days. There's no, no emails at all. It was just a vast quantity of letters um, because the way I'd won was to sort of portray myself as the sort of local hero, as it were. So everybody contacts you. It's not the last resort, you're the first resort. Everybody says, oh, contact Norman Lamb. So you just get this, you get overwhelmed by an enormous quantity uh, of casework. Uh, and, of course, managing that and maintaining it and doing it properly was your route to then uh, holding your seat. But, of course, doing the job properly, uh, it, as I saw it as well. Nowadays... Um, very few people write letters to MPs. It's, it's a torrent now in your inbox coming from different routes. 
but also, but all electronically arriving in the office and managing it because it's now so much easier to click a button and send a protest uh, message to an MP. Managing that efficiently becomes a, a, a wholly new challenge that we just didn't have in those days. Keith, your constituency is neighbours, Normans, for quite a long way. Did you ever fear an equivalent of Norman Lamb descending on you and your constituency? Because that it's a very similar area in many ways. You, you would have thought that the Liberal De Democrats ought to have done better in your seat. Well, if you'll pardon the old-fashioned expression, I used to get pissed off with Norman uh, because it always seemed to me that... Uh, this was a, an open border, and I would hear that um, he, was, he was in Aylsham or Akel or places like that. I mean, he, to be fair, probably felt the same, the same way about me. Um, but, you know, politics is, a, is, is fascinating in the sense that over the 23 years I was an MP, you often found the, the Lib Dems could win district or county council by-elections, but they often failed to retain that seat and, of course, they frequently were unable to make the big impact on, on at, at, an, at a national level. And what I think we tend to forget with um, the electorate, you know, a lot of people don't vote. Um, a lot of people uh, pay no attention to the political literature that comes through. They, their thoughts about politics bubble away until they're faced with an election, and then their view or attitude will have already perhaps been determined. I mean, there are some people who don't make their minds up literally until the, until the last moment. But I think as well that the publics often vote in different ways. You know, they'll decide to vote Liberal Democrat or Green at the district le level. They might vote Labour at the county council level, and then they vote Conservative at the national level or, or, vice, or vice versa. Um, the other thing is, I would say, that uh, touching on something Norman said about managing your inbox on all the posts that, come, that comes in, is you soon realise, once you become an MP, to distinguish between uh, real constituents who are getting in touch with you with real problems, or they want to express a view about international development, or what's going on in the Middle East, or God save us, Brexit, and the serial headbangers, and there are a lot of them out there. They used to write to MPs with green ink. Um, but, you know, these are the people that send you 1,500 words on a wide variety of issues. and Usually on lined paper. <laughs> and in many cases, I mean, particularly if you, you've built up a majority, with some, some of these people, you just, you just ignore them, frankly. Um, the other thing I would say is that um, I, I never had any researchers. I had a very well-paid secretary. I was my own best researcher. House of Commons Library is brilliant. The boom on all of this was in 97. Blair handed out lots of money to the new Labour MPs, about 100 of them, to employ researchers. Um, House of Commons is now full of them. And you know, I see young men and women my son's age, in their mid-20s, and they come to meetings, and you say, who are you? And they say, well, I'm X's chief of staff. I mean, you know, this is somebody who does the photocopying. Um, or, they, or they are the director of communications. <laughs> I think that's, that's a big change from, from 97. 97, mainly MPs, a few researchers, a lot of secretaries. There's now 
an enormous number of people employed by MPs, partly to deal with the fact that the public can get in contact with you far more easily, and also they, you know, they become expensive jewellery. You know, uh, you, you see a, an otherwise obscure uh, MP come into a meeting and he's got three or four children, as I call them, with him. Um, and this is part of his, of his team uh, in, one, in one way or another. Now, Norman may disagree with me um, on this, but that's, that's another way in which Parliament has changed. And then my final thought is, of course, the other big way Parliament has changed is the number of women MPs. Um, I mean, Conservative Party... In 97, I think we had 13, 13, yeah. 13 women MPs. Labour Party had far more. They, they'd had gone for all women shortlists. Um, there's now just over a third of all MPs are women. But you have to bear in mind that women make up 52% of the electorate. My party's always been bad on this. I mean, we weren't in favour of giving women the vote, some of them in 1919, the rest in 1929, forgetting the fact that actually large numbers of women tend to vote conservative for lots of reasons. Well, we were, we were against giving the working class men votes, but a third of the working class men pre-1945 always voted conservative. But that's changed the nature of Parliament from being very much a male-dominated organisation. Uh, and I think that women's approach towards politics is often different. To men's, I think that, that women in politics often have a a very hard-nosed view of what they're doing and what they want to achieve, and I think at times they must sit back and look at looking at men in the in the chamber of the House of Commons pontificating, but not actually delivering either on what their constituents want, or if they're a minister, on what ministers want. And I say, as a a married man since 1984 that women are far more ruthless than men as well. Um, Margaret Thatcher... But you wouldn't want to generalise. <laughs> Ma Margaret Thatcher, Pretty, Pretty Patel, uh, Yvette Cooper, um, they know how to carve a joint of meat. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, let, let's move on to the, the relationship between politicians and the media and the way that the media has changed over the past 25 years and it has been a very big change. Um, when I worked, my first job when I left UEA was as a, not a director of communications but a parliamentary assistant in the House of Commons to the then MP for Norwich North, Patrick Thompson. And um, he adopted a very, it was a marginal seat, he adopted a very similar approach to constituency campaigning um, to Norman and the Eastern Daily Press was the key vehicle for a, a lot of that. Whereas now, of course, you have all the different forms of internet communication uh, and the, the, the mainstream media, I would say, for backbench MPs and for MPs in marginal seats has actually taken a back seat, Norman. Uh, yeah, I think... To a degree, that's right. I, I should just say, uh, it was interesting to hear Keith say that I irritated him. It wasn't my purpose in life to annoy Conservatives, but I did get pleasure from it. Uh, <laughs> and, and I can remember, we ended up getting invited to David Pryor's 60th birthday. David Pryor was the Conservative MP that I beat. So it was an interesting uh, um, achievement that we ended up actually getting on quite well, uh, very well. Um, but he said at his 60th birthday, Norman Lamb pointing at me, 
every time a dog cocked its leg in Fakenham, Norman would put out a press release blaming me. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, was that was the perspective of, uh, of And of it was true. <laughs> it was largely <laughs> true, largely true. But, you know, uh, you built... I can't remember your question now. But we, you built up, um, you know, good relationships with the local journalists that you were dealing with. Uh, because they were your route to getting coverage for the campaigns that you were uh, fighting. But uh, now with um, uh, the emergence of social media, uh, it feels certainly very different. The one thing I'm conscious of with tweets, and uh, you know, I'm, as I'm guilty of doing a lot of tweeting, um, uh, you do sometimes have to step back and re realise that it's a bit of an echo chamber. Uh, and how much are you actually getting into the living rooms of people in Overstrand? Um, Keith, you were a rather late adopter of Twitter. Um, I, I set your account up in about 2012, but you only actually started using it about a year ago, didn't you? And you used it as a means of creating trouble. Well, yes, I think you're, you're correct <laughs> on, uh, on, on, on that. I'd forgotten you'd set it up for me. But it was my, my son said, you really ought to do something on this. And I, uh, I you know, I, I mean, I don't use it very often. I find it was a very useful way of poking Boris Johnson um, in the eye. I, I have to tell you, I would have voted for my cat rather than Boris Johnson, the Labour of the Conservative Party, and that Mr Pumpkin, our cat, is... He's highly intelligent. He is a beautiful-looking cat, and he's a ruthless killer, um, as, as he proved last night in bringing a mouse in. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, the, the trouble is, I mean, Norman's absolutely right. You're, you are limited uh, the number of words you can use, and it's, it's too easy um, to, to say something you later regret. Uh, in in one, way or one way or another. Um, and I'm conscious of that. I, I, I think that there's, there's, a, there's a great danger, and I know this with some of my colleagues, that um, it, it becomes a war of words. It becomes an escalation. Uh, and if you do it with your constituents, then I think that you can then get a... Uh, people can have a very negative view. I am old-fashioned and conservative in the sense that even accepting the changes that have taken place, in 23 years, my, my way of dealing with journalists, and it was, it was mainly the mainline journalists, although it also included uh, websites like Con Home, was to, to talk to them several times a week. I mean, it was useful if you wanted to plant a story, but it was just thrashing around ideas, views, things he might say something you thought, my God, I, I hadn't thought about, about that. Um, you also know, as a member of parliament, that then if you become a front bench spokesman or you become a minister, uh, of which journalists you can trust, uh, which ones, if you want to put a story out, uh, if, they, if they write it up in your favour, then it'll be listened to. You know, if you... If you want a, 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 a really substantial story, then George Parker in the Financial Times is a very good person to go to. You may also, if you're a normal as a health spokesman in opposition, I did defence and foreign affairs, you go to specialist correspondence. Do, do you both worry that anything you now say to any journalist, whether it's mainstream or whether it's sort of on the internet, it is deliberately going to get taken out of context where most journalistic organisations now are looking for that gotcha moment, the, the sort of the Daily Mail headline type story. And do, does that actually 
damage politics? Uh, well, it can do, uh, and you know, I'm always acutely aware of the uh, risks of uh, uh, misspeaking, as it were, uh, on Twitter, or just saying something when you're angry. Uh, and you know, I've I've done tweets from time to time which I've typed out, and then just thought, no, I'm going to delete that before I press the button. And of course, some people have made the mistake of pressing the button before thinking. And and that's when yeah, you me, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's when you get into uh, real trouble. But uh, you know the, the fear of that happening ha- never stopped me from doing it. And I would quite often, you know, if I said something um, and got a big reaction on Twitter, I would then engage with it. Uh, you know, I, I would go out and respond to people who were having a go. Uh, and by and large, you know. It, it was civilised and it worked. So I, th- there, there are great risks uh, involved. It's a viper's nest, but uh, it can also be a good way of having a conversation between the elected people and anyone around the country who offers that person a point of view. How do you think um, political interviewing has changed over the past 20 years or so since, since you've been involved in active politics, Keith? Well, of course, the caricature was from the the 1950s when, um, you know, of course, you had conservative prime ministers, um, Anthony Eden and then Harold Macmillan, and it was often the case that a, a particular interview was done in which uh, both the um, the interviewer and the man being interviewed were wearing dinner jackets. Um, and there's a, there's a famous interview with Harold Macmillan in which um, he wasn't actually in a studio. I think he, I think it was when he came back from his three-month trip round Africa. And it was a hard, hard-headed interview. I mean, they said to him, you know, Mr. Macmillan, would you, would you care to tell us what you've been doing? Marlon said, what have you been doing, been trained, and all, all of that. And sort of, have you got anything else to say? Well, I don't think I have, no, thank you very much. And went, oh, you've, you've now got, um, and it's not you, but you've now got a, a much more um, aggressive style of interviewing. Some... Uh, interviews, they're, they're mainly men, uh, the, the Jeremy Paxmans, uh, the Andrew Neils, uh, although I think Andrew Neil is a, a very experienced uh, interviewer. He and I were in the Federation of Conservative Students in 1971. He was always chasing after the women then, not that he would admit it now. But um, v- people are, are very aggressive. They... Um, you, you, you listen to colleagues being interviewed, even if they're of a different political party, and Three or four questions are being asked of the of the individual before they can even begin replying. Um, I I actually think the, the the really effective interviewers are the ones who ask a very simple question, and then let me or Norman rabbit on maybe for three or four minutes, and then very gently say that was very interesting, but my question was, and I think that 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 has a a, a better impact. Another um, phenomenon of the last election, which has never happened before, is, you know, the Prime Minister simply refusing to be interviewed by Andrew Neil. They've made the calculation rightly that it won't impact on them. But I think it's a deeply depressing phenomenon that uh, we can't hold Prime Ministers to account in that way in a general election campaign. He he would respond to say, "Well, I did 130 interviews in that general yeah, election he did, campaign." Yeah, uh, sort of soft sofa interviews uh, or interviews with, lo- with all due respect to local radio uh, 
reporters that he you know he they would he would tend to have an easier ride than he would have done with Andrew Neil. He refused to do it with Andrew Neil because he knew it would be difficult and he would be put on the spot. I have a slightly different perspective on that in that I'm not sure he did refuse to do it. I think his advisors wouldn't let him do it. Now, in the, no, end, sure that, it was, right. it, in the end, the buck stops with him. I have to say, um, I've interviewed Boris Johnson on quite a number of occasions and I find him... The, one of the most difficult people to interview. The first time was the day he announced he was going to run for Mayor of London in 2007. And he came into the studio to do a half-hour pre-recorded interview. And I, my view is you, you start off with a sort of relatively easy question, get, get them s sort of settled down, and then move on to other things. So I just said to him, um, OK, you've won. What's the first thing that you do when you get into City Hall as Mayor of London? Well, Leonardo, yes, I think it's, well, it's rather good, yes. Um, well, I think I'd, well, yes. And I thought, should we start again? And then I thought, sod it. If he doesn't know what he would do is the first thing that he has as a priority. So I just kept on going. But that, that is how he is in interviews. And if you've got him across the table from you, he never looks you in the eye, which makes it very difficult to interrupt him. And he'll go off on some tangent and you, uh, virtually every interview I've done with him, I have to say, um, Boris, the idea of an interview is that I ask you a question, you answer it, then I ask a supplementary. <coughs> and I had this doing, I chaired a lot of the Conservative leadership hustings, and I had to do the first one the day after this sort of rather d more domestic row that he had with Carrie Simmons. And he came up to me beforehand and said, you're, you're not going to ask about all this newspaper stuff, are you? I said, well, of course I am. And I assumed that he would mention it in his speech, but he didn't. So I just said, well, sort of what happened? Obviously, it's on all the front pages. And he ended up talking about red buses, which is quite a talent if you think about it. So I then had to sort of ask again and then again. And then the audience started booing me, not him. And it was a, it was a profoundly uncomfortable experience in some ways, but that is... Boris Johnson. But do you think that the long-form interview is actually coming back now? The internet has actually allowed the long-form interview to come back, so it's not just the three- or four-minute interview on the Today programme. Inevitably, and you'll know this as an ex-minister, you go on to the Today programme knowing exactly what you're going to say, just whatever you're being asked. The fact is that people have always assumed that the public hasn't got a very long attention span. I mean, my, my son will, will say, you know... Um, I, I mean, he doesn't believe in old-fashioned television, but he says, you know, if I was watching it, I'd be channel-hopping all the, all the time. But I think there is an appetite, and I thought to myself the other day that um, when Professor Whitty... Uh, 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 sorry, it was M M Matt Hancock and then Professor Whitty were being interviewed on the Today programme, quite long interviews, about, you know, 10 minutes, quarter of an hour, and I was completely absorbed... By it. I thought Nick Robinson, uh, who was doing it, didn't keep interrupting. I, I don't look at interviews as interviews. I look at them as conversations. Yeah. Because if you allow somebody to speak, I mean, surprise, surprise, they may actually say something that's interesting. And what I found over the years is that if you do an interview that is 15 minutes, half an hour long, maybe even an hour, and I drive my producers to distraction because we get to minute 27 and they're thinking, well, he hasn't got a news line out of this. And the pressure nowadays, whether you're on the radio or television, as a presenter and interviewer, is to get a headline out of whatever interview you're doing. And sometimes, you know, 
there isn't a headline to be had. Sometimes you are just trying to elicit information. But I often find that by the time you get to minute 25, 26, 27, the interviewee is sufficiently relaxed. They've said what they wanted to say in terms of the soundbite that they want to give at the beginning. They've therefore run out of all the pre-briefed notes they've got in their head. And therefore, you can get something real out of them. And the number of times I've got a good line right towards the end of the interview, I mean, it, it, it's astonishing how that works. And it is the media organizations that put pressure on people like me to get these headlines because they want the 90-second yeah. clip to go on Facebook. And that's the reason why LBC, we have got a big listenership now in the 15 to 24 age group. And the BBC are frantically trying to get that mm. and they, they can't seem to do it. And, and it, it is a pressure and I sometimes rail against it because I don't, I keep saying to the website people, we're not the Daily Mail. We don't have to have a gotcha moment from every single interview. Um, but they've got their job to do. I've got mine. Um, let's open it up to questions. We've got about 15 minutes. Um, ask anything you like. <laughs> Hi. Uh, thank you very much. Um, this was very interesting. I noticed that, um, Norman, you mentioned how uh, Boris Johnson uh, didn't do these programs and it didn't damage his popularity. And then, Ian, you were saying that you were the one who was booed when he was clearly avoiding a question. Um, has something changed in the public that makes them accepting of this kind of stuff? Well, I, I think it's a fascinating phenomenon with what I would broadly call populists, uh, that you, know, you see exactly the same thing with uh, Donald Trump, that however outrageous he is or however much he refuses to be interviewed on certain channels or whatever, uh, it does nothing to damage support in the base, uh, the, their, their sort of base support. And I, I suppose it's because they are articulating a frustration felt by a part of the population. They don't much care how this individual behaves. Uh, I find it all deeply depressing. And, you know, uh, I think there's an incredible importance uh, to finding ways of combating the the phenomenon of populism, which is not just infecting politics in this country, but look across the whole of Europe, look at alternative for Deutschland, and uh, across most European countries, you see something of this. And, uh, but I think then, in a way, we've got to the sort of progressive parties, uh, liberal progressive parties, in my perspective, have, have actually got to come up with a compelling vision for our country that can compete with the easy uh, messages of populists. It's very difficult because, you know, dealing with the problems that we face as a society tend to be quite, it tends, the solutions tend to be quite complex. Uh, take climate change for, as one example. How the hell do you make progress in a democratic society on complex issues, which are sometimes quite difficult to sell to the public? And when you're up against people who peddle easy solutions to complex problems, I think this is a massive challenge for uh, democratic societies uh, in this age. I think Can I just quickly say that um, Boris is above party politics. You know, he remember the the the, the, the Labour Red Wall, which was a bit like Hadrian's Wall, circa 500 A.D. Uh, actually 
proved remarkably easy to breach. But people, people voted for Boris. You talk to Labour MPs and they'll say staunch supporters of the Labour Party voted for Boris. They didn't see him as, as a Conservative. And in many respects, Trump... You know, I mean, American policy is more fluid. I mean, he's been he's given money to the Democrats. He's now become, you know, a Republican, and it, it is a form of, of populism. And then, you know, Boris is I've said disparaging comments about Boris, but I mean, he is a he's a complex personality. There's no doubt about it. But he gets away with things. I mean, if Philip Hammond, for example, had had the the interesting relationships, many of them with a variety of women and interesting collection of children that he's had. I mean, Hammond would have been dead in the waters, but it's the public price that in. The public aren't interested in that. I, I suspect these days the public will only get really upset if they think you are cr really crooked, you know, if you got your hand in the cash register. Just, just on the um, booing thing, I was told by people in the audience actually some of them were booing Boris, not me. And, uh, and to be fair, I think that had that been Margaret Thatcher in that situation, I mean, just imagine, um, the audience would have booed then. It's not, I don't think that particularly was a sort of Trumpian thing the way, in the way it's been written up. Uh, another question. Do you think it's the mainstream media or social media which need greater regulation in sort of today's society, given that we've seen the negative impact that both of these can have on individuals and on society as a whole? We do, we're confronted by this awful dilemma because we, on the one hand, we don't want state regulation of media, for goodness sake. That's, that's surely the very last thing we want we, um, because, uh, you know, any sort of limitation on free speech it should be a concern and yet the irresponsible behavior particularly on social media where you know with uh, fake news uh, is massively infecting our politics is this a blip we're going through this sort of emergence of populism i sort of feel it's probably a trend because uh, social media is not going to go away uh, controlling this beast is is extraordinarily difficult false and misleading messages get traction in a way that didn't used to be the case. The press is better controlled than social media. I mean, there's virtually no control there. Globalisation is having an enormous impact on all of this. And Donald Trump, of course, has heaved it all up, Nigel Farage and others, about fake news. What is real news? What is fake news? Well, we're going to bring, bring this to an end now. Um, I hope you've uh, found our conversation interesting, both on the political side and the media. I feel we've only sort of scratched the surface, but in an hour, that's probably all you can do. So would you please thank Keith and Norman? Thank you.